today on Against the Grain. Fossil fuels lie at the center of contemporary life, powering, despoiling, and altering everything around us. And that includes environmentalism itself, according to anthropologist David Bond. He discusses how concepts like toxic thresholds and environmental impact assessments are an accommodation to the continued existence of the oil and petrochemical industries, rather than ways to address their inherent harms. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. We live in an age of crude oil, arguably the most important commodity except for labor itself. In the 20th century and into the 21st, the United States has been the key player in the generation and consumption of oil, as well as a central place where environmentalism emerged in mid-century. In negative ecologies, fossil fuels, and the discovery of the environment, David Bond writes about the intertwined lives of petroleum and environmentalism in North America. He teaches anthropology and environment at Bennington College and is co-director of the Center for Advancement of Public Action. When I spoke to him recently, I asked him to spell out what sets crude oil apart as a commodity. It's the biggest and most valuable commodity in the world. It, it sort of sets the bar uh, for how we often think about commodities. It's the most traded item. Uh, it generates the most wealth for private corporations. Uh, it's almost single-handedly sort of, you know, won every award one might give for a commodity. <laughs> and how does the fact that oil is this commodity of all commodities affect or maybe obscure our understanding of the massive harms of crude oil? This is sort of the central question of the book. And it's as crude oil sort of, you know, takes the throne of the commodity of all commodities, it sort of, in the, it, it, it casts a, a long shadow over all of the destruction that is wrought in the extraction, refining, and distribution of crude oil. Uh, and the commodity kind of overshadows those destroyed landscapes and lives uh, that are part of how crude oil becomes a commodity. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I want to kind of focus on what happens if we step away from the commodity form for a moment and just center our attention on the destruction uh, that has taken shape in the wake of crude oil. And we'll be discussing that through the course of this hour. But I wanted to ask you about something that you write in the book, which is that writing of the infrastructure of oil, that loss is always a line item within the ledger of gain. What do you mean by that? In the sort of the common sense we have, the profits of fossil fuels are always able to compensate for the damage they do to our world, to our planet, to our lives. Uh, and if you if you talk to people living on the front lines and, and living sort of right uh, where these things are happening, those losses grossly exceed the ability uh, of profit to sort of put it back together again. Uh, and so I sort of, I just want to focus attention on how, how the sort of the common sense understanding is that losses in, in the sort of fossil fuel industry, the losses, the destruction of the environment is always secondary to the ability of profit to put it all back together again. How would you rate the centrality of the United States to this story, to the history of fossil fuels and petrochemicals? The U.S. is ground zero for the history of fossil fuels. We, you know, Texas was the first Saudi Arabia. That that the U.S. has the some of the largest reserves of fossil fuels in the world, uh, most of which it's consumed, and, and remains the world's largest consumer of fossil fuels. So, so the U.S. is sort of, you know, front and center in the history of fossil fuels, both as a producer and as a consumer. While you're writing in your book about the question of the environment, how we think of the notion of the environment and how much it has been shaped by the history of fossil fuel production and consumption. And your story is a transnational one, but the United States is, is central to that. 
So I wanted to ask you how the centrality of petro production and consumption in the U.S. has shaped the way that environmentalism and the concept of the environment developed in this country with obviously all sorts of ramifications for the rest of the world. There's a kind of uh, generic understanding that environmentalism as a social movement, as a kind of ethic, starts in, in, in the global north, in part because it's a sort of outcome of the prosperity that's been achieved by the global north. Uh, I, I kind of want to come against that story. Uh, and I'm sort of situating and saying some of the ways that environmentalism starts in the US is because this is the place that, that the, the destruction of the, of the fossil fuel industry was most visible first in part for how dependent the US was on fossil fuels at an early stage. And so this sort of this reckoning, this beginning to sort of uh, uh, awake to the concerns of clean air and clean water uh, happen first in the US, not necessarily because it's more enlightened uh, or it has more prosperity than everybody else, but because they're more, the US is more besieged by the destructive capacities of fossil fuels at an earlier stage because we're so dependent on them early on. Well, what did that look like in mid-century, in the mid-20th century? How did this emerging notion of the environment take shape and what sort of shape did it take? There's a, a, a sort of long-standing story of, of, of the boom of U.S. society in the post-war moment uh, and, and sort of this, this simple notion uh, that energy expenditure correlates to economic growth. Uh, we know that's not true. Uh, there are a number of folks, uh, other, other nations, who've sort of had similar levels of growth and, and, and general prosperity uh, with far less energy consumption. Uh, but the story in the U.S. is often one of, of massive energy expenditure was the thing that sort of led to economic, uh, general uh, economic growth. Um, but in that history, what, I, what I'm trying to point out is, is that there's also this, this sort of growing concern uh, about the vulnerability of the natural world, the precarity, the precarious conditions of life uh, upon which so much rests. Uh, and so as, uh, as the sort of the U.S. is, is, uh, is kind of rebuilding what, what it means by the good life, uh, a suburban home, uh, a six-cylinder car in the driveway and meat on the table, all of which are very sort of, you know, energy intense forms of housing, transportation, uh, and eating. Uh, as the U.S. builds up that as a kind of a new model of what it means to be, ha have the good life, on, on what metric we can measure achievement as, as achieving a good life, um, there's a sort of a, a growing concern about the ways that that world is also becoming more vulnerable, more precarious. The ways that DDT is showing up all across the board with folks like Rachel Carson and others showing. Um, the ways that Barry Commoner and other ecologists start to see the petrochemical, uh, petrochemical sort of saturating um, the landscape uh, of, of America uh, and newfound fears about radioactive fallout. Uh, now, you know, one of the things I'm trying to sort of point out in the, in the book is how uh, so much of this, this new concern uh, about the environment uh, are really the kind of fallout uh, of the pillars of American power in the 20th century. Um, nuclear weapons and thermonuclear statecraft uh, and petrochemical prosperity. Uh, and these two things sort of cast a, a shadow across America that, that sort of some folks begin to really be concerned about uh, and try to figure out how we can situate them uh, in science and in policy. You argue that in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a shift in environmentalism in the kind of form that it took. Can you tell us about that shift and, and what ideas were sort of associated with it? The first kind of awakening is often, it, it gathers around the banner of what's called the environmental crisis. Uh, and, and for so many at that time, the environment was a new term and, and, and the, the crisis at hand required a new kind of accounting. The existing terms, terms of conservation uh, or, or other sorts of ways of managing the natural world as a resource, no longer fit the scale um, and, and texture of the crisis at hand. 
a new way of sort of conceptually seeing, uh, measuring, and engaging that crisis was needed. And the environment takes shape as that kind of name of the, of the new crisis that's dawning. Uh, and, and so much of that attention early on uh, is, is, however provisionally, is offering a fairly radical look um, and, and uh, trying to face up to uh, the newfound dependence in the U.S. on petrochemicals uh, and nuclear weapons. Uh, and this, this to me, is, is, is it's, it's a curious, uh, it's a fairly radical critique that begins to be voiced, however provisionally, against the material pedestal of American power in the 20th century. And, and in a sense, would it be fair to say that those sorts of ideas that were being developed, that were hinging or connecting the crisis in the environment, so to speak, to American power and the American economic system of production, would it be fair to say that in some way that was the the path not taken of the environmental movement? Yes, I mean, what struck me in sort of reading through this history was how radical the first iteration was, how it really demanded a, a more full confrontation with uh, a, a kind of a new dependence on petrochemicals in the growing of food, uh, a dependence on fossil fuels and privatized transportation, uh, and a dependence on, on nuclear weapons uh, in a kind of imperial flexing of American strength worldwide. All, all of these sorts of uh, new forms of power and prosperity had a material foundation that proved itself to be rather toxic. Uh, and, and the initial sort of concern uh, and protest over the environmental crisis centered these material forms of power as the thing that needs to be confronted and the thing that needs to be put back uh, you know, taken back down uh, to a more sort of uh, uh, sustainable or, or human sort of level. Um, and of course, that's not the path taken. Uh, and, and sort of the, the, the book narrates how this initial crisis uh, and the sort, of the, the, the sort of the first wave of critique that finds new voice within that crisis is sort of beaten back uh, and a new kind of institutional logic takes its place. And that institutional logic, uh, what becomes environmental science and environmental governance or policy, begins to sort of insist that uh, the, the material fallout of petrochemicals, fossil fuels, and nuclear weapons doesn't mean we need to do away with those things, but rather we can try to manage them uh, within certain thresholds. Uh, and sort of there's a, there's a great quote at the beginning of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, uh, where she's quoting uh, the ecologist Paul Shepard, who has this great quote that says, you know, who, who wants to live up to their neck in poison? And that's kind of the logic that begins to take shape in environmental science uh, and environmental policy of setting a threshold that basically lets, you know, authorizes us living up to our necks in poison as long as it doesn't completely overtake us. Uh, and so the kind of environmental science and policy that emerges out of this moment through a number of compromises where the fossil fuel industry plays a heavy role is one of sort of uh, preemptive compromise, uh, of negotiated uh, thresholds, uh, of finding the authorized levels uh, under which contamination is acceptable. And it's only when the threshold is, is sort of, you know, uh, when, when levels cross that threshold that it becomes a momentary problem but the underlying kind of structure of uh, an addiction to fossil fuels, petrochemicals, and nuclear weapons, that structure is no longer contested. That sort of it falls into the background, falls out of view, and only the momentary uh, exceedances of the threshold become the problems that have to be managed. David Bond is my guest. He teaches anthropology and environment at Bennington College, and we're discussing his book, Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels, and the Discovery of the Environment. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I want to ask you more in a moment about the different components of that shift, the shift that you described toward managing the damaging effects of fossil fuels rather than addressing the causes, the industry itself. But I wonder if you could tell us how in the early 1970s, 
that shift happened from a more critical kind of environmentalism to what you might call, for want of a better term, as a kind of institutionally co-opted form that the fossil fuel industry played a role in. What sort of institutions, how did this manifest itself inside the U.S. and abroad? This is a great question. And, you know, the the first kind of wave uh, of the what we now consider landmark environmental legislation uh, and also the founding of the EPA itself all happened in a tight cluster of a few years uh, in 1970, 1974. Um, it, this is the, you know, the Clean Air Act, uh, the Clean Water Act updates, um, and then the EPA. And these are, these are all initially responding to the crisis at hand and privileging um, threats to human health over economic cost. Uh, and privileging the, 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 the need to, to sort of rein in this kind of negative excess of American power, regardless of the cost. Uh, there's a number of sort of very, very famous um, cases that take shape here. Uh, the EPA sort of looks, looks at air, uh, air pollution in major cities uh, and basically begins to say, based on our, uh, our need to prioritize human health, we have to remove a massive amount of cars from cities like uh, LA, cities like Denver, cities like Pittsburgh, and begins to sort of put expectations out for these cities to remove a significant amount of cars from the roads uh, to bring uh, air, air pollution levels into a more sort of uh, below the kind of health thresholds uh, and, and requires those cities or asks those cities to begin to make massive investments in public transit. Uh, this is again in 1970-1972. There wasn't funding provided for those investments in public transit, so a lot of the cities are, are very frustrated and end up suing, uh, and it sort of goes up through the courts um, and eventually uh, sort of gets derailed with the notion that the environmental protections that are put in place to, for human health always have to be measured against economic cost. Uh, but that's that's an addition that comes in later, uh, and my interest is sort of the, the initial one is prioritizing what must be done uh, to bring pollution levels uh, in you know down uh, to a level that's not causing uh, immediate human harm. Uh, and and there's there's this there, there's a there's a wonderful story here uh, about how the U.S. tries to face up to a kind of crisis uh, of petrochemicals and fossil fuels and does so by privileging health and privileging uh, the kind of ecology of the world uh, in ways that sort of have very sort of uh, straightforward expectations of how to radically reorganize uh, public transit, uh, public housing, and other things to bring down uh, our dependence on energy. Um, and then uh, all of that is sort of thwarted uh, and, and sort of it takes on a different, uh, a different start that's much more complicit uh, and where I think the fossil fuel industry realizes the initial threat uh, that the environment had to its operations and ends up finding ways of sort of bending and twisting uh, and editing it into something else that becomes far more complicit with the underlying operations of the fossil fuel industry. Right, and, and as you argue, that imbued the kind of science and kind of approach that uh, would be taken in terms of dealing with the harms from the fossil fuel industry and the production of fossil fuels and petrochemicals. You touched on it briefly, but I wonder if you could explain in more detail this notion of the toxic threshold. Where does the idea come from and what does it authorize in effect? The question I have in the book is not necessarily, I, I want to be clear, <laughs> it's not a critique of environmental science per se. I think environmental science is, is necessary and, and does great work. But I want to understand the kinds of limits that are put on what environmental science can do and what it cannot do. Uh, and, and this comes out of, of ethnographic fieldwork. I mean, fieldwork with frontline communities who often turn to environmental science to try to give voice to their very real complaints and injuries that they're suffering. And they're, they're often the kind of frustration they have with the inability of environmental science to fully voice the the suffering they live day in and day out on the front lines of the fossil fuel industry. 
so, so what I'm uh, trying to sort of work, understand is how the environmental science, how environmental science takes shape in a ways that allows it to do certain things really well, but doesn't allow it always to confront a kind of underlying structure of harm that is the, the basis of it. Uh, and one of, one of the ways I try to do this is focusing on how thresholds become the kind of center, um, the kind of, the, kind of uh, the pivot upon which so much of environmental science operates. Uh, and, and what I mean by this is, is sort of, there's a notion that, an emerging notion at this, uh, at this moment that becomes nationalized about thresholds. And thresholds have a curious history uh, back through uh, labor uh, and sort of the, the internal space of factories uh, of trying to sort of set up what's, what's an acceptable workspace uh, within factories that are producing often, this first, first comes to sort of public uh, controversy in the, the buildup of World War I around chemical munitions. Uh, and there's a, a number of protests and the U.S. Uh, government sort of steps in to try to uh, defuse a, a conflict between labor uh, and factory owners around the kind of the, the toxicity of the workplace. Um, and the Department of Labor steps in to say, we're going to set, uh, we're going to depoliticize the, the, uh, the workspace by setting thresholds for certain exposures uh, to, to sort of keep the workplace um, uh, operable with, that, with minimal harm to workers, but not let that be a kind of conf a, a space of confrontation uh, between labor uh, and factory owners. Uh, and that idea of the threshold soon moves out of the factory into the neighborhoods that live around the factory, uh, where health issues that were once seen among workers exposed to certain chemicals very quickly are seen, uh, guess where, right outside the factory, where the solution uh, to you know, the factory once the threshold is put in is just to emit that, that toxin into the neighborhoods. So very quickly that threshold idea moves out to sort of govern uh, air quality in, in areas around the factory, and then it sort of scales up uh, to a much more sort of national level uh, around this sort of environmental crisis moment. Um, and I, I focus attention on the threshold because I, I, I sort of want to understand the work it does. It can be very, very good at limiting the most egregious exposures uh, that we face. And it has saved many lives by sort of holding, holding things to a certain level. Uh, but it also can distract attention from uh, toxic things in and of themselves that it presumes that it's, it's the amount of something that causes it to be toxic, not the thing itself. Uh, and so when you, when you step back and look at some, some industries, uh, and I think the petrochemical industry is, is a good example, or PFAS, the forever chemicals, or another, where it seems like these, these things are, are kind of have a toxicity uh, uh, at almost any level, it thresholds trouble our ability to confront that sort of the, the, the property of the thing itself. They, they trouble our ability to confront an industry as a whole. Even if we can see clear as day, the industry is destroying the planet. The idea of thresholds really trouble our ability to confront that industry and hold it accountable uh, for the destruction of the planet. Uh, they, they sort of push our, our political efforts, our critiques into trying to find the threshold after which things become harmful. Uh, and this necessarily, you know, shifts attention from what should be a sort of a, a process or a structure in this, in this kind of event, organizing around where it is that the threshold is exceeded, um, which necessarily kind of locates that as a momentary event rather than a more foundational property or process. Right. So in effect, it's about living with whatever the harm is and accommodating oneself as best one can or as safely, hopefully, as one can rather than actually getting rid of it altogether. I should say that I'm speaking with David Bond. He teaches anthropology and environment at Bennington College, where he is co-director of the Center for Advancement of Public Action. We're talking about negative ecologies, fossil fuels, and the discovery of the environment, which is published by the University of California Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So another fundamentally important concept in and practice 
in managing fossil fuels rather than eradicating them, and other toxics as well, is the idea of an impact assessment. Uh, can you explain what that is, how they work? Yes. If there's two sort of uh, technologies that come to sort of define environmental science and policy, it's thresholds and impact assessments. Uh, and I've talked about the, the thresholds, but the, the impact assessments is this, this sort of early notion that we should um, anticipate uh, some of the impacts of various projects uh, and sort of incorporate them into how we plan for that project uh, and, uh, and, and sort of try to do our best to sort of address them early on. Uh, this this comes out of the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, um, and and it sort of mandates that the federal government begin with major projects uh, to conduct a kind of impact assessment process to think about what will be, what will be the impact to the environment of this project, uh, and how can we reflect on them and choose a pathway that's least disruptive. Uh, this uh, you know again there's there's an upside to this. Uh, it, it sort of begins to make a lot of the big uh, projects more transparent. It begins to sort of compile significant amounts of new information about projects, about their potential impact, um, and, and open them up to public debate. These are, these are good things. Uh, but it also begins to have a notion, uh, to, to me when I, look, when I look at impact assessments, that there's no kind of project or no kind of disruption that can't be overcome with a kind of engineering hubris, that, that any kind of uh, disruption uh, can be planned for and incorporated in, into the project itself. And it takes what, what might otherwise be a kind of an external position of critique, a, a way that a community might critique a project for uh, disrupting their homeland, uh, for uh, polluting their waterways, uh, or for sort of destroying um, their, their the landscape that they live in. Uh, it takes those 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 positions of critique that they might have, and it begins to incorporate them into the project in a way that kind of silences the voices outside. And it says, no, 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 we got this. You know, we we've already planned for that. We have a plan for how you know we're going to destroy your homeland, for how we're going to pollute your waterways, and so on and so forth, in ways that really discount and dismiss a lot of the voices of frontline communities who are trying to stand up to protest these projects. Are there examples you could give where impact assessments redirect the ire of the public and essentially diffuse protest? What I always think of is they exhaust protest. <laughs> so many people, uh, protests that I've been at or groups that I've worked with, they go to these impact assessment meetings with a sense that it's, it functions a bit like democracy, in that everybody has a vote, and if there's enough votes against a project, it will be shot down. That's the opposite of how these things work. 99% of people can voice a very reasonable complaint about why a project should not proceed. What the outcome of that is, is often that that project tries to internalize that concern as part of its planning and proceeds regardless. So many of the uh, of the impact assessments I've been to have just been full of people just exhausting themselves, trying to find a way to pull the process back down to more a democratic level, where a kind of the voice of the community could have a substantial say in whether or not it proceeds. And so often that's the, what they say doesn't matter at all. Tell us about the aftermath of the BP oil spill in 2010 into the Gulf of Mexico doing a harm on an enormous scale. You were there uh, in the aftermath when federal officials came and met with communities. What did that experience tell you about how the approach to environmentalism in narrow terms of managing the ill effects of crude oil uh, have their limitations? How did that illuminate for you the dynamics you're writing about in your book about how the environmental critique of crude oil gets redirected into manageable terms? This is great. I mean, the, the BP oil spill for me was the seed 
that germinated into the book. This was this was my first real uh, significant research experience, um, and I had the great fortune of having um, just been funded for research uh, to research the oil industry on the Gulf Coast right before the spill happened. So I was able to move very very quickly and be down there almost right away and just sort of follow the course of of the spill. Uh, over over the many months it took to sort of uh, plug the well and then begin to clean up uh, and was able to sort of see the full arc of that disaster. Um, one of the hardest things about studying the largest oil spill in U.S. history was finding it. Uh, I showed up on the Gulf Coast, like, like many news crews actually, and thought it would be a kind of apparent oil spill. Uh, I met television crews that were sort of driving up and down the coast and they would they would pull over and say, have you seen any oil? Does anyone know where the oil is? And, and there was a kind of frantic effort to see a kind of spectacular oil spill that we all knew how to sort of see and sort of respond to with disgust. That wasn't the, that wasn't the oil spill that the BP oil spill was. Uh, and so much of, of the effort that I sort of went through was, was myself learning how to see the oil spill that was happening, but also watching how scientists and, and, and the EPA also learned how to see the BP oil spill. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the most curious things to me was that I, the realization that at some point the EPA was not responding to the oil spill that was happening right in front of them they were responding to the oil spill they knew how to respond to, which is Exxon Valdez. Uh, after Exxon Valdez, federal agencies had been tasked with, with trying to sort of train for uh, a more uh, effective response to the worst case scenario of an oil spill. And for all federal agencies, that kind of became Exxon Valdez. Uh, respond to the oil spill uh, of a tanker kind of uh, on, a, on a reef. Um, and they, they trained and trained and trained. They became quite good at that. And when oil spills happened, when tankers sort of crashed, there was a very effective response for that. But when the BP oil spill happened in, in the deep water, I mean, over a mile underwater, uh, a, a, a wellhead just like gushing uh, uncontrollably uh, and completely unreachable, this, this was a completely new oil spill. And it took the EPA and others uh, two months almost to figure out how to face up to what was actually happening. Uh, and I, I remember very vividly uh, a unified command meeting I went to in I think the second, the end of the second month of the oil spill on the Gulf Coast. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the head of the head uh, of unified command there was saying to the press, uh, we're, our job is to protect the environment, but we're still trying to figure out what that means here. <laughs> And, and that, that moment was a kind of both, it was a, a vivid you know, realization of how it was happening on the Gulf Coast, but it also became the kind of the big question I wanted to ask of environmental science and policy at large. How, how often our environmental science and policy responds to disasters rather than prevents them, and how it becomes kind of perversely dependent on disasters uh, to sort of further the science and the policy rather than having a preemptive kind of science and policy. So that, I mean, that's the sort of the germ of the whole, of the whole book is in that, in that encounter with the spill. Uh, but you were asking about a, little, a few months later when I was sort of on the Gulf Coast and listening to the state explain how it was going to sort of uh, make things right. Um, and, and again and again, you know, I followed this, it was almost like a, a traveling road show. We would go from community to community over the course of about three weeks, all across from, I think, Florida all the way uh, through Texas along the coast, stopping at communities to have these public meetings. Uh, and in each, each you know, case, uh, folks would, the, the, from the EPA or the Coast Guard or Unified Command would stand up and say, this was first and foremost, uh, you know, a, a human tragedy, a, a number of workers lost their lives, uh, but we're here to talk about the environmental crisis uh, of, the, uh, of the oil spill. And here are all the things that we're going to do to, to fix, you know, to make things right. We're going to spruce up the waterfront. We're going to invest in sort of artificial reefs offshore uh, and so on and so forth, a whole list of things. And then they would say, do you have any questions? And the community, every single time it happened, folks would get up and to begin to tell stories about how the oil spill reached into their lives, 
how how they were sickened or, or how things that they depended on, like fishing um, or, or other sort of coastal resources, were impacted by the oil spill. Uh, and, and EPA and Unified Command folks never knew what to do with that. I mean, I, at one point I asked the person that was taking notes what, what she did with those comments. And she told me, nothing, they don't fit. And I was, I was so struck by the ways that, you know, people in very reasonable ways were linking the oil spill to their own lives and showing how it was disrupting them and, and injuring them in significant ways. And, and the, the, the way the environment took shape, the way that how, it was, how the disaster became measurable within a new understanding of the environment in the deep water really insulated the disaster from those coastal communities. It, it, it objectified the problem at a distance from the people living on the coast. And while the resulting understanding of the, of the oil spill was, was empirically rich, it was, it was fairly sophisticated, it happened in a different place than, uh, than the coast that people lived on. And, I, and, and I, I really sort of you know, wanted to understand how that distance was produced, how it was that the, the experience, the firsthand experience that people had of the BP oil spill from the coast, how that was sort of separated and pushed somewhere else for state agencies. Well, and that kind of separation between people's lives and, and the consequences of crude oil and the production of it was also on display as you write, and the book in which you write it is Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels and the Discovery of the Environment. And I should say I'm speaking with David Bond. That distancing and compartmentalization of the, the deep harms of fossil fuel production was bracketed very actively by oil companies in Canada and the Alberta tar sands, you know, a notorious site of extraction and destruction. Tell us about the extent of the destruction there, but moreover, how oil companies then promise to remediate the harms. So, I mean, if anybody has been up to the tar sands, I mean, this, the scale of destruction up there is overwhelming. It, you, you feel like you're entering an alien landscape where as far as you can see on all sides, there's, there's nothing that, that looks uh, natural. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole landscape uh, feels completely alien and foreign and just blasted and besieged and, and bulldozed over. Uh, what I was struck by though, when I first went up there was that how quickly the oil companies operating there were ready to admit that. Uh, they kept saying, yes, you know, we, we are destroying the place. That's, that is the cost of energy today. However, we're the only people that can put it all back together again. <laughs> and I, and I, I, sort of, I was completely shocked by this and, and really wanted to understand what on earth they meant by this. Um, and ended up uh, getting a couple tours uh, of the mines and being able to talk to a number of executives who were the heads of environmental remediation projects at these sites. Uh, and you know, from afar, uh, I think there's a there's a kind of uh, a critique of the of the tar sands uh, from environmental groups from afar that says they they sh you know they're awful because they're destroying you know the landscape. The problem with that critique is that they've already admitted that. They, they say again and again, yes, but that's the cost of energy today. However, we are the only ones who have the, the engineering capacity to put the landscape back together again. Uh, and, and a little bit more alarming to me, they said, uh, a few of them said, by removing the oil, uh, the bitmen sands from the landscape, we're actually purifying it so that it can return to a more indigenous conception of the landscape. And they took their, their work in destroying uh, that landscape, the boreal forest, as a kind of progressive project uh, of removing the oil so it could return uh, to a more indigenous conception of the land. Uh, this was something that just really blew me away and I found really, really alarming. Let's turn to a location closer to home for you. Can you tell us about what PFAS are and how they got into the drinking water where you live in Bennington, Vermont? 
PFAS, uh, which I think are, are often referred to now as forever chemicals, uh, are a class of synthetic uh, petrochemicals that, that are sort of uh, built around a synthetic bond between fluorine and carbon. Uh, and that bond, once it's synthetically produced, is, is almost indestructible. Um, these uh, chemicals, this class of chemicals, PFAS, were first invented um, by the U.S. military uh, at the, uh, right after World War II uh, and quickly became into use within plastics manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, and within uh, firefighting foams. And there are two sort of separate uses that sort of shape where, they, where they're most prominently found today. Uh, they, uh, they are a class of chemicals that's, that's sort of uh, very useful in the production of molten plastics. Uh, plastics can be very sticky, and these, these chemicals are known for having properties that nothing, nothing sticks to them, nothing reacts to them. Um, they, they, uh, their inertness was often sort of seen as evidence that they were benign. I mean, for a long time, the reactivity of a chemical was seen as a mark of how toxic it was. If, if the more reactive a chemical was, the more dangerous it probably was. These chemicals don't react to anything. And so their, their kind of, uh, their inertness was seen as a kind of benign quality. Um, yet, uh, very early on, uh, a lot of the plastics companies that were manufacturing them or using them in plastics manufacturing noted a number of really alarming health trends among any worker who interacted with these chemicals on the factory floor. Uh, a number of issues that's, that were consistent uh, and a clear pattern of harm uh, from exposure. Uh, the companies uh, as early as the 60s um, and, and, and really clear by the 70s and 80s began to amass a, a, a robust data archive of, of health trends among their workers and then among uh, nearby communities where these chemicals had migrated into the drinking water of. Uh, and those, those companies, largely 3M and DuPont, uh, buried that health <laughs> data set every chance they had. Um, it was eventually discovered uh, by attorney Rob Ballot in West Virginia, uh, who wrote a really... Uh, blastingly strong letter to EPA in 2000 um, and began a very glacial process of EPA wakening up to this crisis of PFAS chemicals. Um, my own community of uh, Bennington and Hoosick Falls, which is about six miles down the road, uh, discovered PFAS chemicals in the, in the drinking water and a number of private wells in 2015. Uh, and I got involved pretty early on with, with our own community um, and, and trying to figure out how to respond to this, this threat of forever chemicals. While much of what you've been describing has taken place in the United States, obviously Canada as well, yet these stories, of course, and the narrow way that the environment has been defined and hence managed extends far beyond the United States or North America. I wanted to ask you about one place, though, that is within the nexus of the U.S. state, which is the Caribbean. I wonder if you could tell us about the history of crude oil refining there and the strange way that history unfolded in relationship with coastal mangrove trees and ecosystems. It's great, and I might start with just the first part of your your comment in that you know once the the U.S. sort of was the first um, right the, the the head of of putting together a new kind of way of governing the environment uh, through the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, EPA, and so on. But within about a decade and a half, just about every nation state on Earth had formed a similar kind of agency. Um, there's, a, there's a moment in, in the, the 70s and into 80s where, where the UN sets up the, you know, the, has the big conference on, on the human environment, where the environment really becomes it's, it's a new um, responsibility uh, of nation states worldwide to begin to produce some knowledge of and begin to produce some new uh, policies around. So there, there's, there's a way that this, this story, it starts in the U.S., and the U.S. is sort of right at the beginning of it, but it very quickly spreads out and becomes a kind of almost worldwide um, formation. Uh, each one takes a slightly different shape in different, in different places, but it, but it becomes something that almost every nation state realizes they have a responsibility to in a new way. Um, 
that's a sort of tangent to the first comment he made. The question about the the, the Caribbean, uh, there's there's a very curious moment uh, as the as the environment is taking shape uh, that the U.S. is beginning to run out of its own domestic reserves of crude oil. Um, this is the late '50s and '60s. Uh, that that uh, the U.S. you know had some of the world's largest deposits of fossil fuels, uh, and it drained them in record time, um, in part by building a whole style of life that was dependent on massive energy uh, expenditures uh, and and wildly inefficient expenditures uh, in like you know six cylinder, eight cylinder cars, um, thinly insulated and uh, and oversized homes. Uh, and meat at every meal. These are distinctive sort of, they, they become uh, in the post-war moment, distinctive American traits of, of, of life. Um, and they're, they're all premised on sort of the notion that fossil fuels are uh, cheap, abundant, and inconsequential. Um, in, in the late uh, 50s and 60s, uh, the US begins to sort of hit its limit of domestic reserves of crude, uh, and it begins to, for the first time, face up to uh, uh, plateauing outputs of domestic crude and then actually declining uh, crude. And there's, there's a, a profound moment of, of reflection uh, about what to do about that. And there are debates uh, at the highest levels uh, of the U.S. government and in many local communities uh, about whether to um, invest, uh, to, to make a shift and to begin to invest in uh, more public transit, more public housing, uh, and more efficient kinds of diets or more sustainable diets, or on the other way, to begin to extract and, or coerce uh, oil from elsewhere. Uh, and, and of course what happens is the US begins to sort of shift uh, and, and try to coerce cheap oil from elsewhere to maintain its addiction to fossil fuels. Um, at this moment is also the moment that there's a beginning uh, awakening around environment uh, and, the new, and the passing of some, some you know, the Clean Air Act. Um, and really, I mean, I think the Clean Air Act should be called the Fossil Fuel Emission Act because the, uh, the seven substances that it actually regulates are all byproducts of fossil fuel emission. It's not so much defining what clean air is as it's defining the limits of fossil fuel emission uh, in the air. Uh, but as those restrictions come, come into place, they begin to put uh, some, uh, some limits on domestic refineries. This, this kind of conjuncture, this historical context, one of declining domestic reserves and at the same time new restrictions on uh, fossil fuel infrastructure like refineries, turn the Caribbean into a, in a, a perfect place to build out new refining capacity uh, for the choice to not only allow the American addiction to fossil fuels to continue, but to actually encourage its, its deepening. Uh, and so you have in the, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, this massive investment in sort of almost offshoring U.S. oil, uh, oil refining capacity uh, from the East Coast to the Caribbean, uh, where tankers uh, coming with foreign oil can stop, refine the oil, and then ship the refined products uh, to the East Coast. The Caribbean is, is, is chosen quite explicitly uh, because it, uh, it's a place where uh, labor law uh, is, is uh, more flexible, uh, environmental oversight is still non-existent, uh, and where import and export restrictions don't apply. Uh, and so you have this sort of massive shift to refining capacity and the Caribbean very quickly becomes one of the, the major refining hubs in the world. Uh, almost all of the product uh, is shipped to the U.S. It, it refines oil in one direction, to the U.S. Uh, of this story, uh, the sort of the, the, the exemplar of it uh, becomes the Hess refinery on St. Croix. Uh, which very quickly becomes the world's largest refinery or second largest refinery, depending on how you, you, you measure it. Uh, but it becomes a, a, a massive, sprawling refinery uh, that at one point is responsible for something like um, almost 10% of the national consumption of oil uh, and, and, and single-handedly is able to sort of set pricing of gasoline on the East Coast, uh, all of which is, is, happens on, on, on St. Croix. St. Croix is a U.S. territory. Uh, and, and Hess builds there uh, 
because it, it counts uh, as part of the U.S. for all of for for sort of um, eluding uh, import export restrictions, but it it counts as foreign uh, for the application of labor law, tax law, and environmental law, uh, and and the U.S. territory becomes this perfect gray area that's domestic when it's when it benefits uh, the the company uh, and the the American addiction to fossil fuels but becomes foreign whenever there's an expectation uh, that that labor might be protected or the environment might be protected uh, or that tax uh, taxes might be sort of imposed across the Caribbean uh, the the most opportune place to build these refineries becomes in mangrove uh, estuaries which are seen as kind of backwaters, filthy places full of bugs and disease uh, that are best bulldozed and raised and turned into oil refineries. Uh, so the, the dozen or so oil refineries that are built in the Caribbean at this moment, all, all to sort of uh, take foreign oil, refine it and ship it to the US, almost all of them are built on mangrove estuaries. That destruction of the mangrove in a curious way uh, ripples out into a whole number of disruptions to coastal life in the Caribbean uh, and becomes a new field site uh, for a new kind of uh, ecology that's attentive to how mangroves hold not only uh, marine life together but also hold a number of social possibilities or, or enrich social life in the Caribbean. Uh, and there's an insurgent kind of ecology that comes out of this disruption that begins to sort of center the mangrove as a new symbol and as a as a new kind of uh, 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 reserve or sort of uh, ecosystem in the Caribbean that must be protected to protect the Caribbean. Uh, and that uh, becomes a huge check on the American empire of oil and, and over time ends up uh, significantly uh, limiting uh, the refineries and, and actually closing a few uh, for their destruction of the mangrove. We're entirely out of time, but ending on that somewhat positive note, David Vaughn, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sasha. I really appreciated the conversation. We've been speaking about David Vaughn's book, Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels and the Discovery of the Environment. He teaches anthropology and environment at Bennington College, where he co-directs the Center for Advancement of Public Action. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.